Welcome to Off Center, the podcast about digital narrative and algorithmic narrativity. My name is Scott Retberg, and I'm the director of the Center for Digital Narrative at the University of Bergen. In this podcast, I'll have conversations with the researchers at the Center, as well as other experts in the field to discuss topics revolving around digital storytelling and its impact on contemporary culture. If we can write computer programs that generate poetry, why not make some that can generate films? On this episode of Off Center, I'll be talking with Roderick Coover, a filmmaker, digital artist, and professor of film and media arts at Temple University, about his career and about our collaborative work together in producing works of combinatory cinema, computer programs that produce different versions of a film every time they run. Welcome to Off Center the podcast about digital narrative and algorithmic narrativity. Today I'm here with Roderick Coover. Welcome, Rod. Hello, Scott. Uh, Rod Coover is a professor of film and media arts at Temple University. Also uh, has some training in anthropology, visual anthropology, has done a number of of different types of media artworks, done a lot of work over the years in, in documentary film. So really work that crosses media forms and different ways of using audiovisual media and computation uh, to create digital narratives. Rod, could you tell me just a little bit about sort of your journey, your background, how you got into doing this type of work? Well, thanks, Scott. The journey, I think, began with a kind of a lost period of wandering around the world with cameras. I had been uh, graduated as an undergraduate in a mixed degree of history and filmmaking and started working as a forest ranger, a ski bum, went off to Japan, got on a bike and biked along the southwest looking at disappeared pioneer sites. The only thing I could carry, because I was traveling lightweight, was a small camera and a notebook. So the process was one that grew into something called visual research, uh, but at the time was a kind of gathering, almost scrapbook making, like with a bunch of scraps. And uh, out of that, I then uh, launched into uh, MA and PhD that took me to West Africa. And I started creating what was then, I think, one of the first interactive documentaries. This is in the early 90s, before the internet and before we had DVDs. I was trying to create a structure like interactive DVD for creating documentaries that would blend text, image, sound. And I, had, I did an MA in experimental theater and film. So there was a, always a sort of a, an element of the surreal meets the documentary, which was a And this was sort of, of targeting like CD-ROM technologies. Well, it was. It was not targeting CD-ROM, but there was nothing else there at yeah. the time. <laughs> so it was imagining the DVD that was yet to be invented. So I spent a lot of time trying to do something that then could be done very quickly. But that's the way it goes, right, with technology. Right. And happened later with panoramas in the same way. So this process of exploring, gathering data, using an ethnographer's method of a participant observation to then tell stories, to not just arrive with a story pre-made, but to let them grow organically out of the database, was, was in a way a structure I was working with that was waiting also for hypertext to come to it and waiting in a way for fictional collaboration to come to it because it was in a way a map maker's, scrapbook maker's, gatherer's form of getting data, researcher's form, and then 
beginning to draw stories to pull them out, interconnect the parts, build out webs, which was the title of my uh, first CD, actually, then Cultures and Webs, Cultures which was about yeah. connecting all of these different elements of a documentary story, the language, the metaphors, the images and the visual tropes, the sounds and their echoes, and how do you actually interlink all of these and begin to live in a cultural world of a documentary the way we live in our imagination, bouncing between references and understanding innuendos. And you sort of did an interdisciplinary PhD at the University of Chicago, is that That's right. It was the first all-electronic dissertation at Chicago since 1999. So the early days of multimedia scholarship. And that had took itself several forms because, again, the technology was not quite there. So there was a fragmented element. A lot of it was done in story space, which still today, story mm -hmm. space has the most amazing, clear interface for hypertext, for interactive writing, the way that elements are mapped with boxes and files encased within files in a way that's so visual. Twine has that aesthetic a little bit, but really there's nothing out there that has the beautiful openness right. that story space has. I really regret that nothing else has come because for thinking, in a way, visualizing what we do in the creative process, for helping one create, for visualizing, in a way, a different way of editing. Some of the node-based editors have this structure, but not this sense of the embedded elements in the same way. It's a beautiful visualization of what, in a way, the creative process is for me. And I know you did a documentary on um, winemaking in Burgundy. Yeah, that's also uh, right. Mixing two hobbies. <laughs> that's right. So I had Actually, uh, that's also an interesting part. That was also part of the thesis work, um, a couple of years of participant observation in Africa and a couple of years in the vineyards in France. And I had gone there in part because of, at the time, I was looking at medieval history and the naming of places. And you can't escape the naming of vineyards working in medieval Burgundy. So one of the ways to get to learn about place was to start uh, doing harvests, working at the vineyards. And then I got more and more into this aspect of how one actually lives a sense of place through through work, through touch, through the activities of picking the, the grapes, the buckets, the clippers, the daily routines, the relationship to the land that is very intimate, very intense, very much a part of the expression of a wine, of its place, and mm. how the winemakers in a, very, in a space where the land is very small feel a sense of expression out of one row, even almost one row to the next. These clothes are tiny. One side of a hill to the next side of the hill can be radically different. And the towns can't grow because the vineyards are so valuable. So everything is contained by a medieval history of wine at the was really developed by the monks uh, in that area. So there's a sense of history lived in the terrain that you live every day. You go out and work that terrain. And that also became a way of thinking hypertextually about uh, movements through space, movements with photo and text that mm. describe how we inhabit a landscape, not a surface landscape of maps, but one that's lived and breathed and one that changes with the moods of the day. Yeah, and you've done a lot of work with, I guess if I think about your body of work, there's a lot of interface between spatiality, maps and images, there's a lot of interest in landscapes, and there's a lot of interest in the way that landscapes uh, connect to stories, also a lot of interest in the environment and sort of the long standing crisis of the environment that's played into a lot of your work. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about those projects that you did around the, the Colorado uh, River. Yeah, I'd be happy to. There was, in the 2000s, of course, this was the era of flash, so these are a little harder, some of them, to get back to. Some of them have been saved, others are harder to save. But in that era, I was looking, one, again, at how 
spaces become theaters for the performance of grand narratives, the pioneering of America and then its destruction and so forth. So one set of those was looking at uh, the Colorado River Basin. I had started that project because I was teaching in San Diego. I had a collaborator uh, who was a poet named uh, Lance Newman who went on to become a dean at Westminster College in Utah, who um, was a, also, a, during the time I knew him as a PhD student at Brown, a river guide, and he ran river trips every summer. So he got me on some trips, and we started this project revolving at the time around the works of Edward Abbey, but I got also very interested in the contrast between Abbey and Powell, who was one of the first to map the Colorado River, that is one of the first of the invading Americans, as it were, to arrive and, and begin to transform what was a lived landscape into a mapped landscape, right. and all of the cultural transformation that anticipates to come, the, the mining, the road building, the dam building, the all the different ways of thinking about land use as a story of capitalism and conquest, as opposed to just a story of human lives engaged in the land. So this brought a whole new set of politics to the work uh, that continues today. And it came into Edward Abbey as well. And that brought me directly into Edward Abbey. And then I did a much larger project on Abbey, an interactive film, map-based film. And this was about, in a way, how time and place both work together to in threads to, to create these rising performances or gestures toward an act, in his case, political act. At the same time, I was doing panoramas in landscapes, say, in Mexico City, where the theatrics, in a way, were also spinning and twisting so that your route through time and space would start to become a little jumbled, the way it does in memory and in longing, where you grab the vital parts and try and hold on to different stories while losing control of others, which is, I think, also the way uh, political struggles go, you can grab onto a couple stories at a time, and meanwhile, the full force of environmental industrial expansion keeps going. So, yeah, and we talk about the uh, philosopher Timothy Morton. He talks about uh, hyperobjects, these sorts of processes and, and, and entities that move at uh, scales that are beyond our linear comprehension of time that are sort of larger than human scale or, or so much smaller than human scale that we can't really grab onto the whole of them. But we can maybe see them and understand them in the, in these little facets, and that maybe that's a way for us to begin to process, for instance, climate change in ways that otherwise people tempted to say, oh, well, it's just weather. Weather's always going to be weather, right? Yeah, well, maybe this leads me a little bit into we've worked together closely uh, on a number of projects over the years. I've been friends since uh, we put a show together right when we started the ELO and 2000, right at the turn of the millennium. But then in the last, I guess, I don't know, decade or so, we've done, I think, seven different uh, projects, some some short films, three different uh, combinatory generative film projects, and a cave-based virtual reality piece. So I thought while you're here, it might be interesting to talk a little bit about those projects. But also, one of the things that I think is really interesting about the way that we've worked together and that you've worked with with other artists as well, is the collaborative uh, process where we're sort of moving between approaches to media, approaches to story, ways of thinking about evolution of of story in in digital media and sort of creative exchange. So, yeah, you want to talk about uh, some of the the early projects maybe? Uh, Yeah, I'd love to. One thing might be interesting to go back to at this moment is to think about Interface itself because back in the early 90s, there was a real hunt for what is this screen space, a space of theater, a space of desktop 
mm-hmm. which just had to be invented as a concept, right? It wasn't a desktop to begin with, and then someone calls it a desktop. Macromedia back then had this theater space with casts of characters. And uh, for me, I always liked this notion of the environment as a space of performance. Mm, like Brenda Laurel. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's a process. It's a, and these things we gather are triggers. And I think part of the collaborative process that we've shared and other people we've brought into these collaborations is a movement away from sort of, here's a fixed script, here's a fixed image, and composer make a fixed piece of music, to rather, here's a trigger, you respond to this trigger. Right. And so the creation of triggers that lead to other triggers and how this stuff, in a, in a performance sense, how in a way we play with a kind of improv that right. then we say out of this improv, ah, here's something we can build from it, like a theater process of starting with improv to build the play and then beginning to write that play out as an expression of what happened through an improv experience. In this kind of improv, which deals with very specific and often substantial documents and political facts and scientific research, a backstory that gets contained in the database is, is, you know, we build on. And yet it's really about the performance we live in in our time, which is still how do humans tell stories and make sense of the muck of all this stuff and often fail to. We have a deluge of like climate change science. And yet that doesn't, isn't helping us very well to take response. And part of that is the you know, you need to get to a different way of telling the stories. What's the language uh, behind that, the authority behind that, this deluge of fact. So creating the improv space, well, this is an improv. And so we build from that, like in our projects at the very beginning was sort of, okay, here's a scientific moment. Say I was in Norway, what mm-hmm. was it, 2011 when the volcanoes were going right off in, Ice- volcano, yes, yeah. in Iceland. And that was disrupting travel all over Europe. And then you dig up the histories from the 18th century, of even greater volcanoes that caused such trouble throughout Europe that flour production went down, bread prices went up, and uh, it's one of the triggers for the French Revolution, right? (laughs) So these things become wonderful historical triggers for the stories that then you throw back to me, and I'm out there filming What Do I See Today on the fjord around Bergen on smoky, cloudy days. And out of that, we have misty days, and we have something beginning to take place as a story. Yeah, and then just to continue with that particular example, the last volcano. One of the interesting things that happened there was then we did, you know, we did have a, a script and we got together with a, an actress who's also a novelist, Crew Nielsen. She was reading this script, and all of a sudden, her husband shouted down a question because he'd overheard something, and there was a sort of irritated look on Gru's face about <laughs> the recording being interrupted. But then you, Rod, said, well, you know, do that again. <laughs> because it was this moment of, of serendipity where we saw that once this narrative was interrupted, it would kind of change, introduce this question, when did this happen? And is this happening in the past or is this happening now? So I think those, uh, those kind of moments of serendipity have been really important, too, about the, the, the projects that we've done. Another thing I think about is the idea of the database, even in the short, linear films that we've done. You know, you can think about database as a kind of literal structure, which we use in in the works that are computational, that are driven by algorithms to generate new versions of a piece each time that it runs. But also this act of, okay, I have some text, you have some image. You create an image in response to a text. I create a new text in response to, to that image. We talk through some themes. We bring in another theme. So over time, we really accrue these sort of buckets of related material 
and then kind of uh, come up with a process of, of what to do with them together. And then this idea of database and narrative, I think, is really important because this is something that, you know, I guess Lev Manovich wrote about um, many years ago. But there is this idea, can a database be a narrative? They're sort of maybe the opposite of each other in, in some ways. So this becomes an interesting challenge, I think, just in the way that hypertext can a fragmented text that'll be read differently every time you read it by different people. Uh, can that still create a, a kind of cohesive sense of a shared story, which is a really interesting challenge. Yeah, it exposes the narratives involved in creating of the database in the first place. And I think that's something that's been really fun is that, you know, these databases being collected since the beginning of libraries, at least in a sense, or other scrapbook collections, scrap collections, a collection of ancient bones of saints or whatever it is, coffins. And there's something very explicit or made visible about uh, this uh, process of first going out and filming, say I'm out filming on the river and shooting all these sets of materials around different towns that might be impacted by flooding or chemical zones with incredible chemical pollution, all of these uh, brownfields as they're called, and sorting these in different collections or along different themes, maybe the same image shows up in two different forms, you know, people living in polluted waters, infrastructures, and so forth. And there's already a story of, of someone sorting, the editor's story. And then you, you come along, you're doing research using the uh, data that I got, because I did a lot of archival data on uh, chemical pollution zones, mm. and you're Toxic. comparing that to how people live and die during storms, how people survive. Yeah, I mean, and that's... those stories, which is, again, it's, you're collecting a database, but you're telling stories, and you're saying, look, these fit just by gathering them together, you're telling a story itself, and then... You go through, we start to go through the database and new stories come up and they keep switching back and forth. This is a film, uh, particularly we did this in the film, Toxicity, Climate Change Narrative, but it was already a structure that was also there in a film we did just before, Three Rails Live, which is in a way one character living in a moment of floods and now we expand it to, oh, but there are all these other characters and there are these real characters who die and there are these other ones who maybe are telling stories from a future because they lived, but what kind of future is that? And it goes back and forth through time in the way that databases offer, like, like memory, where there's no time set. You have to reweave time each time you tell the story. Right. And the, the database contains within it all of these acts of gathering that's not neutral by itself but it becomes re reanimated. Yeah, and I think one of the, j just to maybe explain a little bit more about toxicity, a climate change narrative, because I think the process that occurred there was fascinating. First, you had a commission from the Chemical Heritage Foundation Museum, um, mm -hmm. museum that was originally funded by Dow Chemical, as I recall, mm -hmm. to do a project DuPont's about... DuPont's mostly, DuPont, yeah. <laughs> DuPont, sorry. It's founded, founded by DuPont, and it's now called the Chemical History Museum. Chemical History Museum. But then it was called uh, Chemical Heritage, yes. But anyways, you had been doing this work with your students where you'd been doing sort of surveys of the, the Delaware River estuary, and you'd been doing a lot of filming in, in kayaks of basically Superfund uh, sites, uh, factories, and sort of mapping out all of these places where there was a, a lot of uh, toxic waste or where incidents had occurred, and your students had gone out and done... Uh, interviews with people who worked in these areas. So there was this big pool of, of, of source material that sort of created a sense of an environment. And you gave those to me. And then I started thinking through creating sort of small fictional narratives that combine these elements. And then, yeah, right when we're working on it, I used to live in New Jersey and Hurricane Sandy hits, right? 
like right where I used to live. I remember looking at the newspaper and there's a picture of President Obama standing on this ruined shoreline and he's standing a block from like the house where I used to live is just an area of ruins behind him, right? Then that brings me to, okay, well, flooding, uh, hurricanes, climate change, this becomes material and real uh, in that moment. And then we talk about this and then have that idea of bringing in these obituary stories from all the people who died in New Jersey from, from Hurricane Sandy. And so then those become this element where there's one layer of fictional stories that are bringing, based on these, these facts and these places and these occurrences, sort of projected just a little bit into the future. And then we also have this layer of obituaries and then remixing on these images that some of them are just sort of shot flat in reality, but then you also do a lot of modifications of the images to take them in a new speculative direction. Yeah, they get polluted, don't they? (laughs) Uh, A lot of the shooting also was done with panoramas that allowed me a lot of space to manipulate, to create, in a way, a color palette that is either one of looking forward into a chemically polluted color palette or the kind of palette one has looking back at memory on tinted photographs. So I was trying to play a little bit with that sense of color, as it were, kind of language element, uh, along with the actual language. The movement of story to story was interesting in that, too, because we have six characters, so they're Mm -hmm. very specific characters living specific stories that are very different, and that uh, draws attention how the details of our environmental conditions affect each person very differently, and that adds up to a kind of chorus of stories that I think is a powerful entry point into, again, this problem of otherwise very abstract notion of climate change. And I think we see that very uh, effectively set against the actual documentary stories that most people in storms die really mundane deaths. Yeah. And that that's the, the it's heroics. It's the, it's the diesel exactly. generator is the largest cause yeah. of death after hurricanes, right? You, you have this sort of heroics in the newspapers and then the actual death, exactly. People turning on their generators and suffocating or tripping on an electric wire in the basement. Or Doing things, things with like, chainsaws, trying to, uh, you right. know, and then having the trees they're trying to clean up fall on them. You know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's a tremendous set of after stories. That was a grim month stories. researching those stories. <laughs> 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 we did a few projects that had some grim months because I yeah, think of that, yeah, and yeah. I think of Hearts and Minds. Well, let's talk about Hearts and Minds. This is another collaboration that we did with, uh, well, a pretty big group of people, really, but uh, core uh, collaborators there were Daria Supakova and Arthur Nishimoto at the Electronic Visualization Lab in Chicago. We had this opportunity. I was on uh, sabbatical at uh, UIC and had the opportunity to do some things with the the EVL, and we started bouncing around ideas of of how we could collaborate with them in that space. And you came with this, uh, at the time I thought sort of, wow, that that would be sort of an insane way to, to work with this environment. But you said you'd just been talking to a colleague. Well, that's right. So I had been uh, introduced to a text by uh, John Sukuyama that was a doctoral thesis. Uh, An old student who had had a full career as an investigator for insurance companies and was a remarkably patient and thoughtful uh, interrogator, as it were. A person whose agenda was not to enter into a conversation with accusations, but to listen. 
And he had been shocked by the revelations that came out of the Abu Ghraib scandal mm -hmm. and reached, started to reach out to veterans to listen to their accounts. And it was through uh, his advisor, Jeffrey Muir at St. Andrews, who um, I knew via the University of Chicago, that the idea came up, well, maybe we could work with John Tsukiyama with this material because he wanted some way to make the material public. It was shocking material, really detailing war crimes. And he wrote a, he wrote a dissertation, and he, he maybe could have mm -hmm. gotten an academic book out, but he did want to uh, think about different ways to communicate this. And we, we had this opportunity to work in a 3D visualization environment, which I often think of a lot of the work that comes out of these things are sort of kind of CGI, 3D gamey, cartoony types of environments. So initially I was sort of, well, don't we risk trivializing things or making it look like a game? That's right. We had to really work with this. And it was interesting. On the one hand, when John first came to me about this, however we got together, we discussed making a film. And we both had the sense that the material might be in a way too sensational for a film, for talking of avoiding certain traps in different media, that we wanted a medium that would give us space for viewers to listen. And as it were, a space to stop and digest. Mm -hmm. Film has insistent forward motion. And some interactive experience would allow the user to halt, contemplate, face really quite ghastly stories. And meanwhile, how do we get the viewer to cross that very difficult line of being close enough that the story moves you, but not too close that you turn away or that you are, you don't, well, have, you, you don't have a way to reflect on it. And we just found that the large scale VR experience, the, the cave environment, the interactive environment that was immersive, especially uh, in, in a case where you're there with other people, allows one to maybe uh, confront, enter into worlds that are very different, very, in this case, shocking, but also to pause in that world to wait, to digest, and then move on. That was one aspect that was fascinating. The other was to create this tension dealing with the stories themselves. In the case of the original text, this collection of interviews with veterans that describe a kind of alienation when they return home, thinking back on what happened, trying to make sense of what happened, being either witness to or implicated in acts of torture in many cases. Yeah. And... So the idea of creating a game environment that, as a start-off spot, the sense of the this suburban home, but it's somehow slightly off because it's artificial, that when you reach in this space, you move through the space and you reach for an object, and then the walls fall away and you fall into some much more, in a way, tangible and yet slightly surreal landscape. You're not quite sure where you are in each setting, each desert setting, each setting of bombed out buildings, but you're definitely not in that artificial suburban home. Right. And that tension mimicked something that was very strong among the Yeah, the stories. The I stories mean, themselves. And what and what I had done with the was sort of taking those interviews, kind of trying to distill them down into the actual stories, not deviating from the stories, but sort of combining them into characters that each represent a different type of experience. So putting them into one voice that, that actors could interpret. But an important thing to, to say about those stories and about that project, I think, is that these were stories from the point of view of people who either witnessed acts of torture or even more prevalently, you know, committed those acts of torture. 
And the project that John was doing wasn't about sort of demonizing these, these individual people, but trying to create an understanding of the processes that led to the possibility of that occurring. So it, it wasn't about uh, this sort of futile gesture of, okay, look at all these bad people, look at what they did, put it in a box and, and make it go away. It was more, okay, this, this is something that's happening. This is something that, that we need to confront collectively and, you know, as Americans with a shared sense of responsibility. So I think one of the things that we were trying to do in creating these environments that really do immerse you and where you have someone who's sort of back in America and then they trigger an object and the walls drop away and they're in a sort of surreal desert environment. And then you just listen. You never see these acts of violence. You see the the spaces and you hear the stories, but it really does have this effect, I think, of putting them in your head in a way that, that I think is really kind of surprisingly powerful. There was, in fact, yeah, one of the characters who even had a line along those that thread. I, I won't quote it exactly correctly, but essentially, you made me do these things. You made me see them. You should see them, too. Yeah. And that's why I'm telling them to you. And that notion that these kids who, soldiers, who were, for the most part, didn't sign up to become torturers, were thrown into a military that had a leadership that had chosen to use intensive interrogation and torture. The soldiers found themselves in very compromised situations in teams where it's very hard to decide what to do when the platoon leaders and the commands from above are telling you you've got to use waterboarding, telling you you've got Mm. to get your information by any means possible. And it poses the question, well, if you were thrown in that situation, what would you do? And what we see from that is uh, how much one has to look at the underlying system, that is uh, the orders from above, make a big difference. And these underlying systems, I think one of the things in all our projects is working with the database structure and building narratives out of these elements of evidence as saying, where's the energy? It's not the evidence, but it's the things that tie the evidence together that start to point to structures. And that whether it's structures behind facts of floods, we don't see people dying in the floods either in our film any more than we see torture in hearts and minds. Mm. It's the specter of these events behind that are big processes, processes of exploitation, chemical exploitation, exploitation of humans in the military, the exploit, all sorts of exploitation of the land, and that what's driving those are the, these hidden forces behind the surface theater. And, and while our database is not the hidden forces, it's not at direct, it points to the fact that there are these forces and that in these gaps between the bits that come together, that you ask, well, what's driving it? It's made more explicit because the structure asks what's driving these forces. It's not just, as you say, the demonized individual. It's yeah. something else that, that's pushing this story along and as if these characters find themselves caught up in a bad play, but underneath it is this theatrical structure. And if you think about the, the use of, this is just occurring to me as I'm thinking about it, the way that you do, you work with images is often in a way spectacular, but it's kind of the effect in the way that we're using that with the narratives kind of becomes the inverse of spectacle in a way, where it's not that the 
when we're talking about violence or we're talking about these really uh, profound, tragic things that occur to people uh, living in contemporary situations, that's not what we see on the screen. We're hearing about it in the stories and we're seeing reflections of it in a landscape environment and we're creating a thinking space. The, the visual environment becomes a thinking space that I think hopefully helps people to process and to have a more complicated relationship. I'm glad you observe that. Absolutely. I think there's something that is about the undoing of spectacle by, in a way, throwing oneself into it to create these spectacle-like experiences where you can begin to maybe unpack, unravel the media force that presents our reality in a way that point of innovation or point of contact to the media that working in a way with the tools of that control us, working with digital technology, cinema technology, brings us close to that point of its power upon us, if in a way to make work, try and work in the images in these biggest forms, in a way that you begin to feel or recognize where maybe the, some of those other powers are hiding in the grand spectacle. And that, in a way, part of that is the absence. Looking at the spectacle, there's often also an absence. And one's asking, well, where is it? What, what's the thing that's missing? Is it really the dead body? Is it really the burning town? Is what does the chair mean? It yeah, exactly. And then, and then folding chair? you hunt yourself, and they become an active participant as opposed to a sucker in the audience. Great. We're going to have to get uh, going here uh, shortly, but I did want to say uh, how excited, after the pandemic uh, and both of us having some, some other projects in the mix the last few years, we really now have an, an opportunity with the Extending Digital Narrative uh, Project and the, and the Center for Digital Narrative to create some new work. Also, to think about some of the more recent emerging media environments, XR, AI, maybe environments that, that we speak to and, and speak back to us, to think about how we can really use these technologies in ways where the poetics of the work are actually suited to the, the use of these technologies, not, not simply to explore new media forms for the sake of, of exploring them, although of course there's always an experimental benefit to that, but really thinking about what are the unique capacities of these environments, and then actually telling some stories. It's an exciting moment, Scott. We've got some good stuff ahead, and there's some tools that really are opening up things we've been doing all along to a next level. The movement between the database, where the movement is all the more physical and literal and envisioned. It's active. There's a lot to be done right now in the theater meets the map. And then there's a the sense of the immersion and where one speaks to the tools of immersion, and where AI meets... Uh, yeah, and then, and then and these VR different cognitive agents now yeah, that yeah, um, yeah. it's going to be uh, really exciting to to work with you on these projects over the next uh, over the next years. So thank you very much, Roderick Coover, uh, filmmaker, explorer, digital media storyteller. Thanks for joining us here on Off Center, and we'll be back in a couple weeks with uh, with new guests on Off Center. Thanks for listening. What is zombie yoga, and can playing a game change your life? Next time on Off Center, I'll be talking with Doris Rush, a game designer and senior lecturer at Uppsala University and professor, too, at the Center for Digital Narrative, about existential, transformative game design. Make sure to follow us on social media by searching your favorite network for the Center for Digital Narrative to keep up to date with our next episodes. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you for listening. 
Off Center is produced by Jesse Von Balcom with the assistance of the design skills of Valeria Antizana Acosta. And we want to thank the Norwegian Research Council's Centers of Research Excellence Program and the University of Bergen for their support.